Good morning. I pray that it, that is our prayer this morning for the Lord to speak His truth here this morning as He opens up our eyes, as He transforms us as we look into His Word here this morning with a title of our gospel witness, our gospel witness. In fact, praying for a gospel witness as we move into Colossians chapter 4. We've been the last six weeks looking at Colossians from a very high view at the very high view of Christ, in fact. In these previous messages, basically an overview, maybe, of, of Colossians, certainly not verse by verse, certainly not taking the time to go through everything, but highlighting Paul's solution to guarding and protecting the church. And through these high Christological passages loaded with truth of who Christ is, his, his supremacy, his sufficiency, his authority, and our union with Him, His union with us, I pray that we have come to a, a place of recognizing His preeminence, fixing our gaze on Him so that all those other false pursuits fade away, so that we are transformed, in fact, by our gaze on Christ. That, that's what the Spirit does. Uh, so with all this cultural pressure, the, the waves of false teaching for Paul's audience here in Colossae, the, the drift, in fact, in our own world of living for self in this upside-down chaos of our day, it is critical for us to gaze and behold Christ so that His supremacy, His sufficiency, His authority is set before our weak hearts, our unstable minds, and our feeble knees so that as we gaze on Him, we will be transformed. It will impact our worship, our life of worship, and it will overflow into our witness to believe in our hearts and to demonstrate with our own life that Christ is our only hope, and the message of the gospel brings us that hope. And then through us, He brings that hope, this message, to other people, to the nations, in fact. So, as you know, as we walk, walk through these beginning chapters, he starts with thanksgiving, Paul does. He starts with prayer, rooted in the gospel, rooted in Christ, rooted in this gospel message that they heard, and it is increasing and bearing fruit. He then warns the church of the dangers of the false teaching through different comments, and we can connect that back to the, his historical day as he sets before the church Christ and every showing these points of the false teaching that is drawing them away from Christ. And Paul's purpose is that they will, of course, hold fast, stand firm, love Christ, glorify Him, and be effective witnesses. And that's what we're going to move into here today. As they're faced with this false teaching that really could lead them to wonder whether Christ really does supply all of their spiritual needs. The Colossians needed to be reminded that their present experience of faith and love really rests on this solid foundation of what God has done for them, who Christ is, and this outworking of the true message of the gospel as it works in them and through them as they received it, as they heard it, now they're going to be encouraged to then take that out. The gospel will go forward in this transformative way to not just change them, but change others. So they're faced with these false teachers who apparently encourage 
this church, these believers, to look beyond the gospel, look beyond Christ for some ultimate spiritual fulfillment. But Paul stresses the inherent power of the gospel itself, which they heard, which they received. And he started with prayer, and then as we move to chapter 4, he's going to finish with some comments about prayer. Let me read this, and then we're going to pray, in fact, and move through these few verses here to, to wrap up this series of Colossians with our focus once again on prayer and the gospel. So I'm going to read from Colossians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 2, just through verse 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open, us, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Why? He says in verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, this living, active word. We're reading and hearing. Lord, we do pray, as we just sang, that you would open our eyes, that you would transform us, shape us, conform us. As we hear your word, as we hear you speak to us, I pray, Lord, that you would remove all the uh, distractions, even now in our life. We would focus once again and gaze on Christ and as your spirit works in us through your word this morning, that you would impress upon us what you're calling us to do, to be steadfast in, in prayer, but also as we understand Paul's own request for opportunities to declare the mystery of Christ, clarity, in fact, to declare the gospel message to those around us, and then that you would help us to walk wisely, toward outsiders, towards people not yet in your body, making the best use of our time. Lord, this, this passage here speaks directly, directly to us in our gospel witness. And I pray, God, that you would do your work in us here this morning for the purpose of glorifying your name. Give us eyes to see and change our hearts even now as we, as we walk through these few verses. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your, your great work, and thank you that we have this opportunity again together in a community to gaze on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So with this short paragraph, Paul's concluding a, a series of his general exhortations uh, from chapter 3, which we looked at some of that uh, last week, exhortations about the way how, in how the Lordship of Christ is to be lived out in daily life. We focused on the beginning of chapter 3, the, the put off, the put on, the, these imperatives that are again rooted in the indicatives of what he had already told them, these statements of, of who Christ is and who they are and their union with him. And then it runs through, and we didn't have time to do this last week, we don't have time to do that here this morning but he runs through a typical household code, a Greco-Roman household structure of how families were to operate within society. So he gives instructions for husbands, wives, 
children, and slaves. This is a very typical format. We, we actually talked about this not long ago on Wednesday night, if you were there uh, during our family six-week series. But he applies to this household code, code something different. It's the gospel. It's Christ and how that changes the structure of the family, how it changes the headship of the family, and so on. And then he moves in this transition, moving, of course, from chapter 2, chapter 3, as he lays these indicatives, lays these foundation, grounds the imperatives to, to see Christ as Lord, reigning over your life, the source of all things. Uh, he has broken and shattered, in fact, every power set you free, and you are now alive in Christ. And we keep going back to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So his focus in chapter 2 and 3 has been asserting Christ's exclusive role in salvation and in our Christian living. In respect, of course, to the rival claims being put forward by the false teachers that Christ isn't quite enough. You need some, something outside of yourselves, something outside of Christ, and you need to seek this secret knowledge, this mysterious knowledge that is out there somewhere. So moving into the second half of chapter 3, and then as we get to chapter 2, there, there's an explicit concern uh, not so much anymore of the false teachers. He kind of lets that fade off, and he brings it back to prayer, brings it, in fact, from outward thinking and looking to a more outward, uh, from inward looking, and now into more of an outward, as he's going to ask them to pray, continue in prayer, and then pray for himself, and then talk about walking wisely. So the movement in these few passages, uh, 2 through 6, is a general encouragement to pray, verse 2, a request to then pray for Paul's ministry, verses 3 and 4, and then he exhorts them in their Christian living, uh, in their walk for Christ. And I, I would say we could divide this actually into two parts, which we'll walk through here, is to continue in prayer, verses 2 through 4, and then continue as witnesses in verses five and six. The, the Greek text follows this, this structure. There, there are two imperatives here, the verb in chapter two and then, or verse two, and then the verb in, in verse five, dividing this in kind of two places. Continue steadfastly in prayer, also praying for Paul and, and, and the gospel, and then walking in relation to their gospel witness. I want to read just one other passage from Ephesians. Uh, the reason I want to do that is because there's such similarity in Ephesians. Many view Ephesians and Colossians as sister letters. I haven't mentioned that yet, but there's so much content that is similar. Uh, very close parallel to this uh, request here to pray and then to walk in wisdom in Colossians 4 to, in fact, Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you can open to chapter 6 or just listen here. I'm going to read verses 18 through 20. Paul says very similar things, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, just like what he does in Colossians, uh, 
that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Here in Colossians, he says the mystery of Christ, mystery of the gospel for which I am am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Very similar to this request here in Colossians chapter 4. So, closing instructions before he gives these final greetings in the rest of the chapter, continue in prayer and continue as witnesses. I don't think it's a stretch uh, even for us to connect this all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6, as he's connecting this prayer, these two imperatives, in fact, to what seems to be the overarching theme of the letter, that the gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 6, is constantly bearing fruit and increasing in you and in the whole world. But here he says, and in you. So the pattern that we see moving right into chapter 4 is you heard it. You received it. And it, the gospel, changed you and is changing you. And then as we get to chapter 4, there are others who will receive it. There are others who will hear it now from you. They'll see it in you. They'll hear it from you. Therefore, continue in prayer and continue in your witness. So let's look at here verses 2 through 4. Continue in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In the Greek, this continue steadfastly is one word, uh, to be courageously persistent, to hold fast and not let go. The NASB says devote yourselves to prayer. Prayer is essential, not casual. It's not just about the intensity of of the prayer, but it's consistent. It's persistent, and it's prevailing prayer. Just like Jesus' parable of the the, the persistent widow in Luke 18, where he sets this up to say, I'm going to give you, in fact, the reason why I'm going to tell you the parable first, in verse 1 of Luke 18, where he says, "You, you ought always pray and not give up, not lose heart. This is the kind of praying. Continue steadfastly in prayer. This kind of prayer, of course, we know marked the church, the early church. Uh, We know in Acts it says that all with one accord were giving themselves to prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Paul speaks in Romans to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Paul adds some qualifiers here to it, again, very similar, uh, back to Ephesians as well, but he adds these qualifiers, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, and in it be thankful. Watchful, vigilant, staying awake, maybe against drowsiness, like we know the disciples certainly had in, in the garden, in other times, maybe it's towards indifference, maybe it's a lack of focus, but be watchful in it, vigilant in this consistent, persistent, prevailing prayer. And in it, be thankful, be grateful, bringing us to that right place as we come to God in prayer. This is the manner of our prayer, consistent, constant, with watchfulness, vigilant, and thanksgiving. Uh, New Testament 
is interesting how it uses this word watchful uh, in light of typically the imminent return of Christ. Twelve out of the 22 New Testament uh, occurrences of this word watchful are in that context. Be watchful for the, in the light of the imminent return of Christ. Paul could mean it here. Watchful in prayer could mean watch your own life in light of the return of Christ. Watch or be awake constantly to the nature of the times that they live in, that we live in, these last days, and orient your life accordingly. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Prayer that maybe should be characterized by a strong sense and expectation about Christ's near return, which governs and motivates the way we live and the way we pray. Be watchful. Also be thankful. This true appreciation of who we are in Christ, dead to the world and all of its powers, alive to God in Christ, when all of our sins are forgiven, able to stand before this holy God and destined to glory, referring to many things that he's already talked about here in Colossians. This will inevitably, inevitably produce thanksgiving, and with this attitude we come grateful for what Christ has done for us and what he is doing in us and through us. So be constantly praying, persistently praying, prevailing prayer with watchfulness, vigilance, and thanksgiving. And then, interesting, Paul turns to himself, asking for prayer for himself. In verse 3, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. In Ephesians, he asked for boldness, fearlessness, courage. And here he asked for clarity and opportunities to speak that word. In particular, then, there's two areas that he is asking for prayer. There's so much here that really does apply to us, applies to us in this community, this covenant family of God. As we pray for one another, we have to include also praying for opportunities to speak the truth, to speak about this mystery of Christ, which is the gospel, and then to speak it clearly. So two things, opportunities to advance the gospel, but also ability to clearly speak the gospel. Paul is asking those in Colossae to pray, first of all, that he would have an open door. Not an open door like maybe sometimes we use that phrase, but an open door to speak the full truth of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, which is no longer a mystery. Christ in the gospel. And then he's asking for God to give him clarity to speak the truth. Opportunities for the word to advance and avenues for the word of God to to reach dull ears, but for God to prepare this way for the word to spread. Again, a reference probably back to chapter 1, verse 6, that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, spreading, advancing in you and in the world. So opportunity, but also clarity here in verse 4 when he says that I I may make it clear, which is how I 
ought to speak. Uh, During the ABF elective hour, we've been going through some different shifting sands that have been in church history, maybe currently contemporary times of shifting sand, moving away from sound doctrine. It goes right along with the content of Colossians. And one area that we've been talking about is just distortion in the message of the gospel. And of course, over church history, there have been many battles, and those battles continue even in our day, over inerrancy, over the authority of the Word, over the deity of Christ, over the person and work, in fact, of the Holy Spirit, uh, maybe over paradigms for spiritual transformation, paradigms for church growth, uh, worship style, form, music. The list goes on and on of these battles that have always been before the church, and many of them affect the gospel itself. One in particular I want to just bring in here, uh, whereas Paul says, help me to speak it clearly, with clarity, is this idea that seems to be a shift today, maybe for decades already, uh, this one in particular related to pragmatism, relativism, and what we might call the myth of influence, the myth of influence, which is a direct attack on the gospel, disguised by a way to win others to Christ, a a way to grow the church, methods of growing the church, approaches to avoid offending people and make them comfortable so that they will accept Jesus, accept the message of the gospel. And there's only one way to actually do that. There's only one result, and that is to leave out parts of the gospel. It's the myth of influence, says the gospel advances on the back of public favor. It advances on the back of public favor. Somehow, we need to influence people into the kingdom of God. Create the most strategic alliances, maybe would be one step. Position ourselves in places of authority. Or if we can just stylize our churches to eliminate this consumer resistance to the gospel. If we can create this atmosphere where everybody feels comfortable, avoid offending anybody, and we can make the church look just like the world so that outsiders, people who are not in the body of Christ, will come in and and feel just as comfortable here as they do in a movie theater, in Starbucks, a non-threatening message, the myth of influence. Make it more inclusive. Remove the obstacles that are keeping people. There are a myriad of compromises when we go down that road. Myriad of compromises. So Paul asked them to pray for himself, not just for opportunities, not to build bigger numbers, build bigger buildings, but for clarity on how he speaks the message of Christ. It would seem for the church, there's a combination of things that probably have led into this. One could be decades and decades of of this thing we call political correctness, which has reached a crazy level now. But think about years, decades of political correctness stifling the church because we can't say anything that might 
offend anybody. It leads right into the seeker-friendly model. The pragmatic methods of seeping into the church, the, the, the be nice campaigns so that we can share this happy message, this message about love. Let's not offend anybody. Let's talk more about God's love than God's justice or God's wrath. Let's do what we can to fill the pews, not the kingdom. There's a big difference. These compromises have trickled down into how we, in fact, communicate the gospel. Maybe we would com communicate it in a way that intellectual assent is enough. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for expectation, in fact, of the fruit of repentance, also known as obedience. We don't need to go there. Just believe. Come to Jesus. Everything will get better. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. Believe in God. He has a plan for your life. Accept Jesus. He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's this offer of eternal life of heaven, but no need to see change in your life now. Rescue may be from hell, but no freedom from the enslavement of the power of sin. We're all good people. We make mistakes. Nobody's perfect, but we're good people at heart. Just believe. And if we were to boil all of it down, where does it get to? God loves you. Receive his free gift of love. Is that the gospel? No. It's one phrase. It's one statement. But there is more to the gospel than just simply, God loves you. Receive his free gift of love. That's what it's been boiled down to. John MacArthur says that the church's witness has been sacrificed on the altar of cheap grace. You'll remember, maybe some of you, the the dialogue through books that went through this lordship salvation debate. But he sees this witness that has just been watered down, become this easy belief in something that is not easy to believe. It's hard to believe. In fact, it's impossible. As dead people in sin... It's impossible to believe apart from grace, apart from his manifestation working in us to open our blind eyes. So we don't want to talk about God as an absolutely holy God, no sin, no defect, set apart in every characteristic from his creation, no flaw, only beauty, justice, righteousness, love, Wisdom, knowledge, power, the list goes on. He is worthy of eternal worship as the Holy One. As creator, full authority, he has given us the standard by which to live. He has given us the standard by which we live. Holiness, perfection, keeping every word and every law. That's the standard. Jesus himself said that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody in here able to do that? No. That stops us in our tracks. 
because we are so far from God's standard. We're lawbreakers, transgressors, sinners who oppose God's reign, sinners who have attempted to overthrow, in fact, God's reign. And yet we still like to think, I'm not as bad as them. I'm a pretty good person. That's a long ways from perfection. James, in fact, has fun with this this theoretical illustration. Uh, Let's say you have kept the whole law and you've only fallen in one, one part. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point gets to go free? No. Is guilty of breaking all of it. James 2.10. Even if you could get through life and you've only done one mistake, one sin, it's as if you broke every part of the law. We live for ourselves. We, in our sin, we commit treason to God. That's the reality. But we don't want to talk about that today because it offends. Our sin separates us eternally from God. There's no payment we can make, no good deed that we can do, no merit we can perform to get right with God, to get out from under His wrath. There's a word that we don't want to talk about, wrath. Paul is praying for himself, which is amazing that we would think that Paul wants to pray that he has clarity. If he's asking for that, we certainly need to as well. Clarity wrath of God is beyond beyond our comprehension. Eternal separation, eternal separation and punishment. It's not a ceasing of my existence, which some have tried to bring that in. It's not a few lashes in the woodshed. Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment. And God is fully just to do that. He is fully just to judge us in this way, to condemn us, to punish us because he's holy. And we as sinners have turned from him, turned to live our own life. We don't seek him. We can't seek him when we're dead in our sin, when we're blind by our sin. We're actually happy in our sin. We're sinners in need of a savior, and God has provided that savior. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, he came for the very purpose to be a sacrifice, to live perfectly, fulfilling every jot, every tittle of the law in our place so that he could then die in our place. Out of pure love, goes to the cross, suffered, died, was buried. He took our punishment. He stood in our place. He absorbed that wrath of God for us so that he would make atonement. His redemptive work on the cross, sealed, of course, by that third day when he raised up from the dead, conquering sin, the power of sin, and conquering death itself so that we might have life. And through faith, we come to Christ with nothing to offer. We come abandoning everything, repenting of all reliance on self or anything that we think we can do. And we put our trust in Christ and what he did, what he is doing, and what he will do. We flee to Christ. 
And that's a gift from God, trusting that he is the only way to be forgiven, washed, cleansed, redeemed, to stand before a holy God. It can only happen as we have the righteousness of Christ placed on our account, that we can enter into this fellowship. If we leave out the hard parts, then what are we calling people to? Paul says, give me clarity that I may make it clear. Pray for me that I may make it clear. Sin, the extent of it, judgment, not our puny little standards that we like to set up and compare ourselves to other people. Law, justice, wrath, eternal punishment. Paul prays for opportunities, but he prays for clarity. And we need clarity. In this world today, we need clarity on the gospel. We need to saturate ourselves with the gospel, the truths of the gospel, the truths of sin, of judgment, of wrath, of salvation, forgiveness, adoption, redemption, the list goes on and on, the atonement, so that we know the gospel. We have clarity in the gospel so that we would speak as we ought so that we can pursue it, that we can share it, and not truncate it. Not take out the hard parts. Not believe in this idea of the myth of influence that if I can just make somebody comfortable, they might come into church. Well, they're not going to be comfortable when they sit here and start hearing about sin and wrath and judgment. Now, are they? We have to have clarity in our relationships, and do that with a lot of humbleness and love and grace. And I think that's why he returns here to this outward life. Here, continue in your witness. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech, maybe he's not talking about speaking the gospel or speaking into these relationships, but there's a you, you have to disconnect some verses here to, to get there. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of your time with these outsiders. Let your speech with them always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He just got done praying for himself to give that we would pray that he would have opportunities and then that I, Paul, would make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's really flowing right back to them. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Conduct yourselves wisely in all of your interactions. Be mindful of your own actions and attitudes when you're engaging with them. Make the best use of your time. Be purposeful. Be intentional. And then let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. This is the manner of our speaking. This is the manner of our communication. Speak with kindness, grace, wisdom, while also being truthful and impactful. Seasoned with salt. Uh, just as salt not only flavors, which that's probably our first, our first go at this uh, season with salt, is talking about flavor. Make it flavorful. But it also prevents corruption. And, and the Christian speech should always act 
not only as a blessing to others, but as a purifying influence within the decaying world that we live in, a purifying influence with our words in the midst of the decaying society of our world. Some in probably the pragmatic circles, the myth of influence says this, make it palatable, make it tasty. What do you do when you make the gospel tasty? Well, you better cut out the hard parts. Don't talk about sin. That offends people. Make it tasty. Don't talk about judgment, wrath, eternal punishment. Don't don't bring those things up. Oh my, you'll scare them away. No, out of humility, this is what we talk about. Because we were in the same situation. Separated from God because of our sin. And by grace, He opened up our eyes. That's our testimony. We didn't come to Christ without all those things in there. We came to Christ because we understood where we stand before a holy God. As sinners and enemies of the cross. So here, seasoned with salt, it's a purifying influence. It's a preserving, in fact, of the message of the gospel and adding eternal value to the conversation. The manner of our gospel-centered interactions are wise, they're gracious, they're influential, so that we would know how to answer each person. Just like Peter talks about ready in season, out of season, to, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. The gospel message flowing out of us is always pointing to Christ, always in humility, showing our own cry for mercy, showing our own unworthiness and brokenness, always showing the devastation of our sin against a holy God. And it's always done in love towards others. It's always a demonstration that apart from Christ, we can't do anything, we can't earn anything, we can't merit anything, and we, in fact, deserve wrath. It's talking about us. Humility, grace, love. And that Christ came and He did everything, fulfilling the law. Came and stood in our place on that cross, absorbing the penalty, the wrath of God as He took that upon Himself. So it's always a a then call to faith to flee to Christ. Turning away from self and sin and turning to Christ. And it's always an understanding that apart from God's work, no one can come to Him unless the Father who sent Him draws Him to Himself, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and it's going to to come by the Father drawing you to Himself. But if we confess with our mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's humility, grace, love, but seasoned with salt, preserving the message of the gospel. So Paul says, continue in prayer. Pray for me also. Pray 
for these opportunities to speak the word, the mystery of Christ. Pray that I do that clearly, with clarity as I ought, and then continue as witnesses. Living among these outsiders, going to them in love, speaking truth. So as we've looked at Colossians, uh, it's behold, it's gaze at Christ. Behold the power of the gospel that is at work in you, bearing fruit and increasing. Behold and look upon this Christ who created, sustains, reigns over everything, who is your life, who lives in you, who transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, who canceled the debt that certificate of death that was against you, who forgave you completely, behold him. The one who died for you, raised for you. The fullness of God, behold, gaze on him. He is sufficient in all things. He has all authority. He is the one who is exalted, who defeated sin, put to shame, in fact, those powers and authorities, and released you from that to live alive to God. Receive Him. Walk in Him. Keep on being rooted in Him. Keep on being built up in Him. Keep on being grounded in Him. Chapter 2, 6 and 7. Your life is hidden in Christ. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane, maybe some of you read the Bible through the year according to his outline, according to his plan. Uh, He left us with many choice quotes, even though he was only 30, he only lived to be 30, one of them that you might be very familiar with is is this, uh, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Again, behold Christ, gaze on him. This is a very short, very sticky quote, Uh, helps us to keep our focus on Christ and in fact protect us from the traps and the enticements of sin. Uh, If you read some more of his context around us, he goes on to say, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. Learn, therefore, much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, here's his quote, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even a chief of sinners. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eye settling on you in love and repose in His almighty arms. Some have maybe said that, hey, this is just causing us to look away from our own sin and our own weaknesses and ignore it. But He doesn't ignore any of that. He, in fact, will go on and say, let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him, let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. And here's the punchline. The excellency of Christ is both the brilliant contrast to the sin in our hearts, the excellency of Christ is both the brilliant contrast to the sin in our hearts and the remedy to the sin that we find there. Christ is the contrast. Look at Him. See His value. See His worth. See Him as your treasure. 
And it's the remedy to look away from sin. It offers you nothing. Compare it to Christ. He was well aware of this battle within our own hearts. This is the power of God. This is the gospel that creates in us a new affection, new desires, gives us a new heart, new eyes that we can now gaze on Christ. And as by gazing, as beholding, we are changed from one degree to another. So for every look at sin, for every look at self, for every look at struggle, at trial, at suffering, at enticements of the world, every look at those things at the hopelessness of, uh, of this world, it seems, the ideologies that are destroying every fabric of sanity today, for every one look, take ten looks at the beauty of Christ. This is a very fitting quote. For every one look, take ten at Christ and see His beauty. McShane says, because as you delight in Christ... You are expelling sin and pursuing sanctification. For every look at a delight in Christ, you're expelling sin and you're pursuing sanctification. So as we've looked at these weeks of Colossians, beholding Christ, taken from, I guess, 2 Corinthians 3.18, which we started with, and we all with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we behold, as we gaze on Christ, the result, the outcome is a Spirit-empowered transformation. Beholding Christ is not just some mental exercise, but it's actually transformational power that affects our hearts and affects our lives. By beholding Christ, it centers us in the gospel. Keeping ourselves central on the truths of the gospel. Relying on the finished work of Christ. Relying on the continual work of Christ. It's also a Christ-exalting worship. Because the more we behold Him and gaze on Him, we are moved toward Him with affections that affect our whole life, a life of worship, a life of sacrifice, a life of surrender, because we see the beauty of Christ. We see Him as our treasure. We see Him as worth it. And then it's a Spirit-empowered obedience. Beholding Christ is the means by which we are empowered towards faith-rooted obedience. How? Through our union with Christ. As we gaze on him, as we look on him, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Beholding Christ. I pray that as these six weeks, the Lord will remind us of these truths keep our hearts fixed on Christ. This is lifelong living. This is the long journey, the long road of this life is keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, gazing on Him. 
He'll move us through toward these four things as the Holy Spirit does his work in us and through us. And then we will have these opportunities praying for one another for the gospel, to speak the gospel, and asking God to help us to give that gospel message with clarity. We don't leave parts out so that we can just win them over by nice things, but we will win them over by the devastation of sin and the glory of Christ and His sacrifice and His person and His love shown to us on the cross mixed together with His perfect justice as He took out all of His judgment and wrath on Christ instead of you and me. Let's pray. Father, we, we need You. We need to hear these truths of what You have done for us through Christ and We need to be washed over by this message of the gospel over and over because we wake up every day almost forgetting everything, going right back to living for ourselves, putting ourselves back up on the throne, stealing your crown and putting it on our own head. Lord, we need you. We need you. We need your word. We need your gospel to do its work in our life, transforming us, conforming us, We thank you. We thank you that you have given us these truths. We thank you that we can gaze on you with eyes that are now open, hearts that now have new affections towards you. And we pray that your spirit would do his work in us. And that, Lord, through us, we would declare the message of the gospel with grace and humility, seasoned with salt preserving the message, not watering it down, not making it tasty, unless that tastiness comes after how bitter our own sins are and the tastiness of Christ and all He has done for us, all that You are to us. So, Lord, do Your work in in this body that we may glorify You and live in such a way that honors you that demonstrates the gospel, demonstrates our brokenness before a world as redeemed people who have a message of hope to share with others. Lord, strengthen us by your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.